Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Real Talk. So on today's episode, we're doing a continuation of our last conversation on allyship. And today we have two special guests. Yeah, we have amazing guests today, Jamil. Um, We have Gabby Vasquez, uh, who graduated from Southern. Um, She was actually my student, I think my first semester here. So I met her about the same time I met you. She's now a graduate student um, in business administration. She plays on the volleyball team. She works um, in the university access program office. Um, A really uh, interesting, um, intelligent, smart person who has a lot to say about, um, about allyship, about allyship in her many different roles that she's had on our campus. Um, and then joining Gabby, we have Cameron Arpino Brown, um, who she also graduated uh, with you May of 2021 um, from Southern. She is an AmeriCorps VISTA, um, and she w- works also in the University Access Program um, office, but she co-organized the Black Lives Matter March on campus with you, among many other um, activist roles she's had um, on campus and off campus. Um, back in 2020. So this is just an amazing conversation with two brilliant uh, young people. Gabby's still a student, Cameron very recently a student, um, and I hope you all enjoy. Yes. And before we send folks off to the episode, I would like to also send a huge shout out to University Access Programs, as the SEOP program is about to hit their 50-year mark. So I will say that a big shout out to them. And thank you, for allowing them to be on our podcast. I hope you all enjoy. Hello, welcome to Real Talk. Real Talk is about real conversations with real people regarding diversity in higher education. I am your co-host, Jamil Harp, a student activist. And I'm Casey Counselor, a professor in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department at Southern Connecticut State University. All right, Jamil, let's go. Hello. So today, Casey, we are here with Cameron and Gabby from the University Access Programs. And I am so excited for today's conversation. As many of our listeners may remember, I am a SEOP student. So today's episode is very special to bring some of the folks that are working in that office with us for this conversation on allyship. And this is a very special moment for me. We're picking up really where we left off um, in in last week's episode with Dr. Meyerhofer and Allah Oshimare. And we had folks, you know, we had our our two guests, Cam and Gabby, listen to the conversation that we had last week. Um, And they are both, um, Gabby's a a graduate student now, uh, Cameron's an AmeriCorps, um, taking a gap year and working on campus. So they both have that student, that recent student experience, current student experience in Gabby's case. Um, and so we're getting a different take. We're expanding this conversation that we're having on allyship. Yes. And so to start, we're going to start with what is the connections to allyship that both of you are having in your new roles? Um, well, new for you, Cam, and maybe a little old for you, Gabby, in the University Access Programs office. Um, I guess I'll go. Um, So um, with allyship and what I do, um, so I'm currently an advocate for the university access programs, and we serve um, students uh, from underrepresented communities in higher education in order to give them 
um, resources in order to be successful within higher education and getting on their four-year degree. Um, with our program with SEOP, allowing them to get a second opportunity if they weren't able to do well throughout their academics. Um, we have that five-week program that allows them to um, get credits towards college and also um, reset their like GPA status in order for them to be accepted into the university. Um, and uh, we work with you know, first-gen students, low-income students, black and brown students. So um, throughout that, we also um, maintain a very close personal like connection with each one of our students on each one of our caseloads where we meet every month. Um, and I'll say like indifference from an advisor and like, or a professor, like we get very personal with the students. You never know what might, what that might, that student that you're meeting um, could bring that day. You know, we do give them support and resources, um, for their academics, but sometimes it could be just personal. It could be about what's happened, um, in the society. It could be about their life struggles. And, um, I feel like, being a, an advocate and um, a little bit of what I've been learning um, with having this diverse group of students is, you know, sometimes like a big part of being an ally or being like an advocate is to be able to like listen and be an empathetic and, um, you know, taking action from there because they might not have the support, you know, as a lot of them are first gen, they might not have that support from home to understand what they're going through in higher education and this four-year degree adventure that they're doing. So it's really important for us to um, give them that support and create that home environment away from home and a safe space for them to um, share what they might be going through so we can um, direct them to the right resources. We, we work really close with Council and Services um, and the Multicultural Center. And um, I feel like that it shows up in many ways where it's not like, oh, this is like I'm being an ally. Like it just it just kind of comes with a role, you know, just naturally, like just it just comes out of you. You know what I mean? Um, with that responsibility and knowing what these students are going through beyond like being a student. Um, so that's how it's been for me this past two years. And I absolutely love the the experience and very humbled to be able to be, um, you know, that that person for these students. It sounds actually, you know, like part of that that office, the role is like an institutionalized allyship um, where you're supporting groups of students who have not historically been uh, represented or supported within higher ed. And there's so many positions like the ones that, that, that you, Gabby, um, and Cam have um, to support students in that advocate um, ally role. I do want to pause for a second because we have many listeners who are outside of um, our university, um, who don't know the acronym SEOP. Um, so I would like to hear what does SEOP stand for? Um, and Jamilia, I know that, you know, you can speak to that for us, but also just to know that many universities, they call them different things, but many, if not most universities have some kind of program like this, um, to help address educational inequities. The SEOP stands for Summer Educational Opportunity Program. I know this because I am an alumni of that program. Um, SEOP is a bridge program, so it bridges students that are graduating high school and entering college. And that program is designed for students that were 
either educationally disadvantaged or economically disadvantaged or has been historically disenfranchised from entering university spaces. And so that program stands as a bridge to allow students that traditionally may not enter our campus to enter our campus successfully. And that program, um, it does go by different names at other schools. Some schools call it bridge program. Some schools call it other acronyms. Um, it falls underneath our university access program, which houses other populations of students. So you have that population of students from that summer bridge program, which stays in contact with university access program throughout a couple years of their undergrad experience. Then you have gear up students and other populations of students that falls underneath that office to just even further complicate things. But a long story short, um, I know for me and my student experience, SEOP in the UAP office was a gathering space uh, where we can get support throughout our educational journey regardless of what that support may look like, whether that's mentorship, whether that's being helped with financial hardships, emotional like support, um, it tends to be a space of shared allyship. Um, I guess I can I can talk about my role um, and how allyship plays a part. And Gabby really said it best when she said that, like, it kind of comes with the role. Like, you don't just... Um, even when you asked the question, I was like, how am I an ally? Like, I feel like a lot of it kind of is just built into the work. Um, especially now that I'm working with parents, I'm not a parent. (laughs) I don't know what it's like to be a parent. Um, but I know what it's like to be a first generation student and to not have parents know how to support me. So I know how to support those parents. Um, because I, the, I, want to tell them things and I want to give them tools that I wish someone did for my mom um, throughout my college journey. Um, And being a student that is first gen, working with first gen parents um, or a previous student, sorry, a former student, um, it, it really, it hits home because some of the parents I've spoken to genuinely do want to just be there for their students and they want to support their students. Um, And yeah, it, just comes with the role. I don't really, I I don't know. It's hard to like see myself as an ally when it just comes with the fact that I want to just help the parents um, be able to help their students. Well, a big part of, I think, you know, being an ally that, that I've heard in, in what both of you have said so far is really that empathy and listening and care are central to what it means to be an ally. Um, And I think, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking how often when we're talking about allyship, the image that comes to mind is is um, sort of like on the like on the picket lines at a march, at a rally, at a protest. Um, there's this, uh, an implication that that's what that is. When actually, we can think about it more expansively in terms of the day to day work that you all are doing. Like, what is supporting a parent <clears throat> of a first generation college student and supporting that student? Of course, that's allyship. Right. And I think sometimes we really just see it narrowly in terms of what that means. Um, and I wonder if that if that rings true to you all. Yeah, I think um, allyship definitely um, for 
a majority of people comes off as like you have to be at protest and you have to be really outspoken. But outrage is not allyship. Um, outrage in a lot of senses is really performative. Um, it's for show. It's to get people to turn their heads for a second, but then to look right away. Um, it does come in our everyday work, especially people who enjoy helping people. Um, humanitarians, they help every day. Um, they're allies to everybody that they help. Um, and it's not, I feel like people like to complicate allyship um, by overthinking it and thinking you have to do all these extravagant things when it's really like if you want to help someone because you genuinely genuinely want to, it makes you an ally. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I feel like a lot of allyship qualities can be like silent sometimes. And those might be like the most powerful. Um, Ms. Dawn has this quote that um, it really resonated with like, a lot of people will, I don't know like the exact words, but it's kind of goes as to people will not remember what you say, but they will remember how you made them feel. And I think um, a lot of times when those are situations where people are feeling oppressed, they were, they remember how they felt. And um, I feel like, you know, being able to um, focus more on that aspect of it creates that like sense of allyship as well. And once you're able to create that empathy and um, just being genuine, you know, treating people as human beings, you know what I mean? Like that that helps you to take that extra step um, in advocating for others and stuff. like. That. I do want to ask too about, so, so Cam, you and Jamil co-organized the BLM March on campus. So, you know, just as I'm asking you like, oh, hey, let's talk about how allyship happens in these other ways, in these quieter ways. But also, I'm curious about your experience, the two of you, in organizing that march. Like, what did you, you know, and that was at a, at a particular moment where people were sort of ready to engage and ready to, to, to show up. Um, but what was that experience like? What did you learn about yourselves? What did you learn about your fellow students at the time? Um. I think before I had even like mentioned that I wanted it to happen, um, it was like there was like a moment. I can't tell you where I was or what was happening, but it was right after Chadwick Boseman had died. And I just noticed so many people around me, they were so burnt out and they were so tired and they were so sad. Um, and I realized that I loved helping people and I wanted to do it not for myself, but to make the other students on campus feel like they had a place and a voice to say something. Um, like I can't just des- I can't describe it any other way. Um, and when I had brought it to Jamil and like the entire experience, it was very um, it was very nerve wracking and it was very stressful. But all in all. Um, it was really nice to see a community come together and offer a lot of helping hands. Um, it was um, really comforting to know that like there were also a lot of other students who felt the same way that I felt that like they were there for the same reasons. Um, and also to see a lot of our white counterparts that we would not normally see at other programs that we would host where we would want to see them there. Um, so, yeah. To add to that, I would say I do credit a lot of that march to Cameron because it was Cameron's idea. And kind of bringing it full circle to student activism, 
um, the power that students can have when they show up, the power they can have. You know, Cameron had this idea. She called me, then threw a bunch of us with the VPs in an email. And the next thing you know, we have an actual march happening. I think many students often wait to the space shows up for them where they can be an activist or be an ally. They wait for someone else to direct them in the direction in which they can participate in systematic change or dismantling or supporting. They wait for somebody else to start it. Where Cameron found a need and said, hey, why, why is this not happening here? Why are we not having these conversations in this space? We need to have these conversations. Um, and then planning and executing that um, and taking those steps as well. Because sometimes folks would be like, you know, we need these things and just walk away. But um, Cameron definitely made sure that we planned and executed that march. Um, so I do have to give some of that credit to Cameron. But even roping back to allyship, um, and I'm sure some of you, I'm sure you feel this in your work at UAP. What responsibilities come with allyship? Because there is a sense of responsibility when you're trying to be an ally. What comes with that? Um, I guess that for me, I would say that uh, going beyond sometimes of the, like the smaller things, um, doing your research or finding resources beyond the ones that we're offering on campus for our students. Um, I remember I had a, a student that was from the LGBTQ uh, community and only identified as she her hers behind closed doors and was having a toxic, you know, environment at home um, for um, trans uh, specifically. And um, I had looked up some resources outside of Southern that actually were from like Yale Haven Hospital specifically for that community and pass it along um, to my hall director at the time because I didn't want it to be too intrusive, but I still wanted them to get uh, the resources that they uh, might benefit from. But, and it, even if it's just going like a step further, you know, um, when you're coming across like situations like that, you know, it's not like just letting things slide. It's like taking the responsibility to call things out, even if it might be like an uncomfortable situation. Um, but I think like those things really do matter and, and, and have an impact. And it might teach something, some, someone something that day. I think another part of um, like the responsibility of allyship is also knowing the language. I think that's super important because if you don't know the language around um, the space that you're welcomed into that isn't your space and you don't know the language, um, you can do a lot of harm. Um, and also I feel like just knowing your place in your space, like to put it plainly, knowing your place and knowing when to speak um, because you can't be an ally and always wanting to speak in spaces that were built for the people you're supposed to support. Um, and I feel like doing as um, in a in my position, I do a lot of research. I have to. Um, I need to understand 
um, first generation families. I need to understand their needs. I need to know um, statistics and percentiles and retention and all that stuff. And I think that goes with anyone in allyship. You need to know um, if you're a white person supporting a black person, you need to know black American history. Um, If you're a man supporting a woman, you need to know um, the history of the feminist movement and the Me Too movement and all those things. You need to come prepared um, because it is also not your place and it's nobody else's responsibility to answer your questions that you could have found on your own. Um, I think there's a lot of responsibility that comes with allyship um, because to be an ally, you're basically letting go of the oppressor that was once in you. So you have to take accountability for everything that you have done and accept what the um, what identities you share with other oppressors and accept what they have done as well um, when you come into spaces of marginalized groups. Absolutely. I've been um, learning with Loretta Ross, um, who's just this incredible feminist, reproductive justice um, thinker, leader, just an incredible person. And she um, talks a lot about this idea of repurposing whiteness, um, about, you know, like as a white person, I have, especially as a, someone who passes as a cisgender man walking through the world, which is much different than as a woman, but like, not to, like, there's nothing I can do about that privilege. Like I'd have that, that just is there for me when I walk down the street or when I walk into a room. But the question is, how do we repurpose that? How do I take the privilege, the skills, the, what is afforded to me and, repurpose it and give it away, use it for others. Um, and that's like an, that's an ongoing question in terms of how best to do that. And you can't just assume walking into a room, um, where you're trying to be an ally to a community you're not a part of that, you know, best, like, absolutely. We talk so much, um, in this podcast about listening first, you know, not coming in to speak, but coming in to listen with a sense of, um, humility. Yeah, I definitely, um, agree. And I think that, um, recognizing privilege is really important and, um, you know, ask, I think asking first, um, the communities you want to support, you want to help, like, what do you need? And even asking what can my privilege do for you using your privilege for good? Like you said, like, um, I think people, who have privilege, they can recognize it, but then do nothing with it. And I think that's where a lot of disparity comes. Like you can recognize that you're a white woman who has a lot of privilege over a black male, but what are you doing to support him? What are you, how are you using your whiteness to help him in his blackness? I can kind of see a theme here um, for allyship. This idea of listening, learning, and self-awareness that should take place before you show up to spaces. And this is something you can do on the journey of allyship. I think folks are waiting for a special moment where allyship is achieved, but it's a process that you, you do these things while you're trying to show up to spaces, doing your research beforehand on communities. If you wanna show up to spaces and support women, understanding the issues in which they're going through today, understanding how you will be in that space, how you're taking up that space. Um, and that's what I'm hearing a lot of 
this self-awareness, like understanding the communities you're trying to show up to before you show up to them. Um, Because some folks do believe they know what's best for other communities. Um, And I, I, I wonder, is it enough to treat folks like human beings? Is that allyship there or is it a step past that where allyship is happening? What do you all think on that? Jamel, that seems like a, um, like a fake out question. Like, is it enough to just be a good person? <laughs> is it enough to just be enough? nice? I, I can hear folks saying that. Is it enough to just be nice to people? And can we just leave it at that? I mean, you should be nice to people. But yeah. yeah Cam, what do you have to say about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> just no. Because I think when you ask that, I'm thinking of um, just... And oh, like, I think sometimes of my family members where they're nice and they're, well, I'm not racist or I don't put out microaggressions. Okay, you're a great person, but what are you doing to support people like me? Um, And these are hard conversations that I have had with my mom. And um, she doesn't like it when I kind of tell her about herself, but it's uncomfortable conversations that she has to hear because yes, like you have a biracial daughter who is pansexual and you love her unconditionally and you support her in everything that she does. But what are you doing for people that are like her? So yes, she's a good mom and she's a good person, but she's not doing anything to help the community to help, push what we're fighting for forwards. And we need people like her. You need, unfortunately, allyship is so important because you need your white counterpart. You need the counterpart that in reality is the person or the people or the group that oppresses you. Because a black man needs to step into a room with a white woman and a black woman needs to step into a room with a white man. Um, A cisgender male needs to step into a room with a transgender woman. You need your counterpart to be there. So to just be a good person is not enough. It's not. I like, I I knew my answer immediately as soon as you said it. It's not enough because you could be a great person, but not help anybody in their actual struggles. You could be nice to them, say hi to them, accept them for who they are. But what are you doing to actually help them in their life when they're actually struggling with things that could potentially put them in poverty or have them lose their jobs, have them um, have suicidal ideation, like all of these things like come into play so you could be a great person. But there's so much more when it comes to allyship than just that. Yeah, I also agree. And this is, the thing is that I feel like, you know, growing up, people like are taught, like, you know, be a good person you're on this lane and everybody else is on this lane. You know what I mean? Like everyone's separate. So like you're minding your business, you're being a good person to people. But then when you're getting out of that bridge and out of that comfort zone is when the real conversations are starting to happen and when the real change does happen. I do feel like, you know, we need to treat people like, you know what I mean? Like be cordial and stuff. But when there is like an allyship aspect of it, that's when it goes beyond, um, because if you put two people, right, like if you put a white white woman and a, um, and a black male in the same room, if they're just being courted to each other, there's really not change happening. But if there is like an actual conversation happening where it is forcing them to have those hard conversations and getting them out of their comfort zones, that's where like allyship could could begin and like real problems could be actually solved. Because, um, and I'm saying that because when I was growing up, like, 
you know, I was taught to not point fingers. I was taught to, you know, not speak up. When I moved here, I was told you can't say this, 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 or that. You got to always just nod your head. And there's a lot of things that you just end up just keeping inside, if it makes sense. And it's really no change, no growth from that. So I totally like agree from that. Yeah. It's really a lifelong process too, you know, learning and, and, you know, we're talking about these intergenerational things. So um, that is just a key part. Like allyship to me is this, like you're learning. It's like an ongoing process of learning and relating to other people. And one piece I want to add to this conversation is thinking about our spheres of influence. So, you know, if we're thinking about being an ally, it's not just thinking about ourselves in relation to somebody in a different social category. It's like, who, who do I share some sort of like influence with, whether that's, um, that's my colleague at work, that's my neighbors. Um, and, and where can I have an impact on those folks or in your family? Like Cam, you're talking about your mom. Um, as opposed to immediately feeling like you need to go knock on somebody else's door who you don't know, you know? So I think so much work in terms of allyship, that's where it, it may be sort of not silent, but it may be not visible to a lot of people because it's conversations and stuff that you're doing in the spaces where you already are. Um, and that's, I think sometimes a, a, a space that people don't always see is uh, a place for, for allyship and possible real change. And I also feel like those spaces are safe spaces for people. So when you open up those tough conversations, some people are literally risking losing everything, everything they've ever known. Um, They risk losing family because they don't agree with them on Black Lives Matter. They risk being disowned. They risk being kicked out. Um, So having those tough conversations, um, admittedly, is really hard. It was really difficult for me, even though I always knew I was in a space where I wouldn't lose the people around me. um, It's still uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable to have conversations with people you've known your entire life. And, you know, Um, coming into adulthood and realizing that like they don't see the world the way you see the world because even though you grew up in the same family you had very different lived experiences and we can learn too that that just how to do that better over time you know Um, I know that when I was first um, you know like when I was 20 I was kind of a jerk in these conversations you know in a way that would just shut people down you know, like, I'm not going to like come home and then tell my parents how terrible they are. You know, that's not going to help anybody. Um, and then over time, it's been 20 years since I was 20, um, learning different ways to like, how can you relate to someone based on uh, a shared value? You know, like I know mom that you care deeply about, about human beings and that people should all be treated with dignity and respect. So let's go from there. Um, so I think there are ways that we learn based on, on who we're, we're talking to, who we're engaging with, how to be most effective um, in helping both of us grow. I'm also thinking about, because I am first gen, and the experiences I have speaking with my family, because I speak to my family a lot around these topics of social justice. And because I have the experience on a university campus, I have been exposed to folks from other backgrounds, cultures that my family just have not. And I think often when we're in the space of higher ed, we forget about the level of privilege it is to be in a space where you're surrounded by so many people of varying backgrounds, ages, 
you know, levels of education, experience, and you're having these conversations with people every day, you forget that other people may not be having that same experience. And I think about that question I asked earlier about, is it enough to just be a night person? I think especially in Connecticut and up north, a lot of folks think that, you know, it's, it's just enough to be polite, but we forget you can be polite and oppressive. Like you can be oppressive with a nice tone. <laughs> you can be friendly, but hold really bad opinions <laughs> on other people. And I think about me having these conversations with my family and my spirit, my spirit of influence, because I do it often. And that's where I think allyship really shows up when you're talking with your family and you're exposing them to ideas and concepts that they may not have heard because they didn't go to college or they're not in this space or they've been out of school in a long time. That's where allyship shows up. I think conversations can be hard, but not necessarily always. They don't always have to be this sit down at the dinner table. Let me tell you why you're not being an ally to X, Y, and Z, and you're a terrible person in this whole thing. I normally start off very casual, like when a comment's made, like, oh, what made you what made you say that? What made you think that? Oh, you watch something on the news. Well, let's unpack that. And I kind of start from there and just asking people questions um, until things start making more sense. Again, listening, right? Yeah. Very powerful. Very powerful. Um, I like the um, silence means violence. Um, I think that's like a well-renowned quote, especially at protests, like um, when people are quiet, um, you know, it doesn't really show there's nothing to show for it um, when it comes to like just being a good person and going back to, um, you know, having those conversations with family. I think um, it's like dropping seeds, right? You're like saying something to them now, or like you're questioning them on something now. And then later on you're having a conversation about it. Um, and you're right. It doesn't always need to be uncomfortable conversations, um, especially when, you know, if you do have a good relationship with your family um, and they're willing to be open and they're willing to listen and they do have certain shared values with you. Um, and it is like those moments where like they say something and you kind of like snap your neck sideways and you're like, well, why'd you say that? Or why'd you think that? Um, and it kind of, it actually makes them rethink what they just said. And they're like, Hmm, like, why did I say that? So I think that is like, also like really great advice for anybody listening. Like if you do have family and you don't want to have a tough conversation sitting over the dinner table, just ask them why, like, why did you say that? Or why did you think that? And then it's easier to go back later on to like dig deeper into those conversations. Yeah, I think we really get into trouble when when we assume that we know more than somebody. We assume that we know better, um, and they don't. And I really think that it once we start asking questions, then we're open to also expanding our own understanding of something and where someone comes from. Because probably we have sort of a surface-level idea about what that is. Um, and I think really that metaphor you just used about... Um, planting seeds, Cam, I think that that's it. it. I've learned as a teacher that people learn at different rates and like change often takes time, but people really learn and process things in different ways. Um, and there's a tension that Jamil and I talk about often about the sense of time and the sense of urgency. Um, and it's, it's sort of a tough line to see sometimes like what is like, you want to be, 
learning moving forward. And you also know that this takes time, but there is a sense of urgency about this moment. And sometimes people hide behind um, like this question of like, oh, it just takes time. It just takes time. You got to wait. Um, I'm working on it. I'm still quote unquote learning. And of course we want everyone to, to be still learning, but I wonder what you all have seen in terms of this, this question of time and timing about allowing people time for authentic change, but also not letting that slow the movement. I think, I think some things do take time. Um, but I think with that, like someone doesn't change overnight. So there also has to be like a consistent level of progressive small changes or small um, changes in their mannerism or their language or um, some of their opinions that they share. Um, But at the same time, like I'm very, I guess, like I'm very wishy-washy because I also think like everybody should like start reading now and like doing all this research and just become a better person for themselves and for society because I think that's what needs to happen for everybody to just benefit in the future. Um, so I do th- I do believe, you know, people do learn at different speeds, but it's just a matter of like um, how much they're willing to learn and how much they want to learn um, that um, depends on like how long it takes. Um, but I always, I always believe there's an urgency when it comes to work like this. I totally agree. I think it is a push and pull between waiting and urgency. Things do take time, like changing hearts and minds that does not happen overnight, but things in which I feel that are urgent for people to think about is how do you show up in spaces and where you have influence? Like when you show up at work and you're on a hiring committee, how are you judging candidates of color? Like how are you treating customers of color if you work in retail? Like if you're a business major and you're going to be entering a nonprofit, like how are you showing up without a white savior complex? Like those are things in which I feel like need to be urgent conversations or even conversations around reform or dismantling systems of oppression. When you work in systems that historically have oppressed and continue to oppress people, there need to be urgency around that. Like the school to prison pipeline, like the prison complex, That those are things that need urgency because people are suffering currently. Um, and so I think things in which, you know, learning more about yourself, learning about your identities and how you show up to spaces, there may be less urgency there. That can happen over time, you know, as you grow in maturity over your life and have more and more lived experiences and have more experience with terms and conversations like this. I feel like that can happen a little slower. But how you show up, especially if you have important decisions to make in your career and in your life, that needs urgency. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, like, I completely agree with that, Um, especially, like, when it comes to positions-wise, like, our higher-ups. I know within higher education, um, with that whole, the 2020 happened, you know, we were blessed to have Dr. Uh, Diana Riza come in. And I think that was like a big uh, movement because I feel like we still claim that we are like a social justice uh, institution, but we still like are aspiring to do that. And even with like um, the workshops that we've been doing throughout the semesters, you know, there's still a lot of like work to do. And I know it does take time, but there is like a big urgency with these, with these matters. So 
yeah, I think the momentum we have right now, um, you know, that's built over time and in so many different ways, but, but that movement is something that we have to keep propelling forward. No question. I, I have a thought, and I kind of wanted to complicate this conversation a little bit more. Can when we speak about allyship, we speak about allyship in very specific manners often. We talk about allyship, you know, male to female. We talk about allyship, you know, straight to queer, white to black. But what about allyship between minorities? You know, allyship within that kind of space. Uh, allyship between people of color. What does that look like and how can that show up? And does that show up maybe differently than allyship shows up in other ways? Ooh, I feel like we're getting a little into intersectionality and that's my favorite topic. Um, I think there definitely needs to be a lot of work done in between marginalized groups um, because a lot of times I find people who may not even who may not know the language, but they are marginalized um, and they have experienced discrimination and racism and oppression. Um, but they um, find themselves in an oppression Olympics. Um, for lack of a better phrase, um, I feel like it's always, but I go through this because of my race or I go through this because of my sexuality. And it doesn't have to be like that when in a lot of cases, um, there's black men who are queer. <laughs> there are black women who are trans. Um, and I think in a lot of instances, we need to find ourselves. Maybe if you have a black friend, um, you don't need to support them in your blackness because you understand that experience, but it support them in their sexuality. I think supporting our mar other marginalized groups, but in their separate identities that you don't share with them is really, really, really important because it creates a sense of unity and a sense of community. Um, I'd like, can I share a story? Um, I have a um, transgender male friend. Um, he's also of color. Um, he's Hispanic. And I remember having a conversation with him over text. Um, and he was telling me he didn't want to keep binding anymore because it's just like really tight. It's really hard for him to breathe. Um, and he sent me a picture of, I guess, like binding tape. And I had no idea what it was. Um, so I like in the middle of our test, I start like Googling what binding tape is, like how does it work, where do you order it from, how much does it cost? So um, I texted him back and I was like, because um, he was in between jobs, so he didn't have a lot of money. I was like, hey, like, let me send you some binding tape. Like, what's your address? And he was like, I didn't know you knew what it was. Um, and he called me and he was almost in tears because he had never had anyone support him like that. Um, and he was like, nobody ever knows like anything I talk about it when it comes to my gender. And it was like, for me, it was a moment of like recognition that like I took the time to just research that thing and it made such a difference for him. Um, and like it, like it almost makes me want to tear up right now because like he's never had anyone support him like that. And he was like, I wouldn't think you would like know anything about that. Like, um, even though like you are queer and like you identify um, as someone, a part of the LGBTQ community, I just didn't think you would know anything. Cause uh, like his environment wasn't, uh, he didn't have people 
like that around him. Um, and it just like created like a stronger bond between us, a stronger sense of unity because I was someone who was there to support him, even in my marginalized identities. And I think it hit a little more for him when like, because of who I am and like all the things I do share with him. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, supporting those who share separate identities is really important. Now, see, that's, that's a good story. Now, that's a good story there. I think folks do. They often forget that intersectionality takes place. We're not this one singular thing at one given time. You're this complicated mesh of many identities. And how folks show up and treat you um, really matters. And so I think that's a perfect example of how to support somebody within their intersectionality. And even when we're in this space, we often... I love how you brought up the oppression Olympics because we also do that as a manner of what do we address first? I find that often in my spaces, people will be like, well, we can't talk about the queer experience right now because racial injustice is more important. You know, we can't talk about feminism right now because of racial injustice. We can't talk about X, Y, and Z because of this. Um, Well, realizing we can walk and chew gum at the same time that systems are connected to each other and dismantling them at the same time is needed. So um, I really appreciate that story. But I'm also thinking, what happens when allyship goes wrong? You know, when you try to do something, you try to show up for a person, but that just doesn't work. Yeah, I want to I wanna add to that question, Jamil, about when things go wrong, um, because I think part of what stops people from being allies is fear around that. Um, around doing something wrong. But I have also witnessed people who really are allies and they're in a learning space and to have people who know more than them really shut them down and really shame them um, without doing what we're talking about and listening and, um, you know, sharing, helping them to be better allies instead just making them not want to speak anymore not want to contribute. So yeah, what about this question of, you know, when things go wrong and how it may stop people from being allies in the way that they could be? Personally, I can't think of like a story right now or like a, an example, but I feel like it's important to um, address it because um, you might be able to learn something or might be able to learn how can you better support or better be an ally to that community um, that you're trying to be an ally for. Um but I feel like taking a, like taking 10 steps back, you know, it's 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 worse than not having that conversation. Um, and even though it might be uncomfortable, like it's necessary. I think when things go wrong, people look to the allies <laughs> and it could definitely falter that relationship. I think, you know, when, for example, like, you know, a bill um a fighting against police brutality doesn't go through people look towards white people because they are the ones who are more than likely stopping the bill from being passed and in that turn like if an ally isn't fully in their allyship hasn't fully healed or hasn't done the work themselves they can feel white guilt and you know they can it can potentially make an ally regress in the work that they've done um because they can feel guilty and they can build up that fragility or that um toxicity that they may have once previously had and it can falter that relationship um but 
Um, I think in a lot of cases, you know, a good ally would take that and take their time to, you know, reflect and heal and be like, this isn't what I want, even though people in my community I once was a part of are affecting this marginalized group. It's not what I align with. And, you know, they do the work themselves and they dig back in deep. I'm also thinking about time and place because when we address an ally that may be doing something wrong, I think it's also important in what context. So like you're in an educational space, for instance, and someone that wants to practice allyship isn't getting the terms right. They're not getting the concept. Something's not clicking. And then you as another ally in the room, lose your mind, (laughs) explode. That may not be a good space for that to happen because we're in an educational space. We're in a space of learning. We're in a space of growing. It's more important to focus on trying to answer and figure out where they're going wrong um, and redirecting that than completely blowing up because we're in a space of education. However, bringing it back to Cam's point, if we're in a space of legislation and we're having folks, I don't know, regress at that point, maybe that needs to be a different conversation. I I would say what the stakes are here should determine the reaction you get out of people. But um, getting extremely angry with allies tend not to be helpful in the long run run of things. But however, I do not believe in coddling people in terms of their allyship. I do not believe in like necessarily holding hands until someone gets there and then throwing them this parade like, oh, thank God you got there. Yes. Janelle's not throwing anybody a parade. No. Yes. Casey, you know, I have talked about this numerous times. I do not believe in throwing parades, parties for folks that want to begin allyship or practice small acts of allyship. I don't believe in those things. Well, can I add another another thing into the mix um, here, which is social media? Um, I have a lot of complicated feelings about social media, as I'm sure you all do. Um, but one thing that I that is really I, I, I like both learn have learned so much from social social media, and and am connected to people because of social media who I wouldn't be otherwise, which I've really loved. And I also have such a hard time with the. Um, what seems to me like sort of toxic, intense call out culture, especially amongst activist circles online, um, that I sort of have removed myself from those settings. So what, what kind of role do you think social media plays in activism and allyship, um, both for good and and bad? I have so many opinions on this because I think it is, very useful when you want to get out the word or you want to educate people. I know personally myself, like I post educational things that I'm hopeful that my followers will like click on and read. Um, But also because it helped me learn something. So I'm like sharing the knowledge with people. But at the same time, I feel like people, you know, social media is kind of a write-off for a lot of people, right? They feel like they can, you know, post a black square um, and they're fine, or they can post one image from um, Impact's Instagram page and they think they've done their work for the week. And it's like, that's that's not what this is. Like, this work is ongoing and it's lifelong. Um, I think social media 
Um, you know, like I said, it's good for communicating. It's good getting out of the word. It's good reaching a lot of people when you need to. And it's good when you want change urgently, right? We talked about like, when is, when, when do we need to be urgent? When is, when do we need to take it slow? And I think social media is really good at speeding things up. It's really good at getting the word out. Um, but at the same time, it also can hinder a lot of people too, because social media, you know, people can say anything they want on the internet and a lot of, you know, other opinions can be shared and spread that way too. Um, and like I said, it's also a write-off for a lot of people. They feel like they can do one thing and it is their good deed for the year. Right. They repost something, Cam, that, that you know, you post something educational, boom, they repost it and then they check off that, you know, I did the good thing for today. I, I did my, my allyship. I am an ally because I'm also sharing this information that someone like Cam is sharing. I'm serious. People think that way. Right. They're like, if oh, well, she posted it and I repost it. And that makes me an ally too. And, you know, makes them feel all good and warm inside. And it's like, no, baby, <laughs> that's not how this works. Right. Is it like, do you want to look good or do you want to be like, it's about looking good. I would say a lot of the time it's about looking good. Or, or they put ally in their bio. I, I feel like social media can be extremely performative, like when you put ally in your bio. Um, and I think people have a hard time of determining how is it performative? How do we know? Here goes Jamil, tips from Jamil to know when social media is becoming performative, because I have some thoughts on this. When folks go to rallies for the purpose of taking pictures and then leaving the rally. I recall that being a huge trend during Black Lives Matter. Folks would go to a rally, hold a sign, take a picture, then leave the rally. Look at me. I support X, Y, and Z. Smile. That's it. That's performative. When people are posting about their allyship in their bio and claiming to be an ally, I always think that's performative because I don't really believe you can call yourself an ally. I believe others can call you an ally. You can't give yourself this term. Um... Also, I think that social media can be a great companion to activism and social justice. I think activism over time has grown and changed in ways in which it shows up. So don't get me wrong. Social media can be a great tool, a tool to use for meeting up, for planning, for spreading awareness, for getting out information, to showing videos. I think it can be a great tool. However, it can be harmful. And I remember um, during George Floyd when everyone was reposting the videos or reposting videos where people are dying. I found that to be performative, and I also found it to be harmful. I found it to be deeply harmful. And I remember constantly going, like, every time I opened social media or the news or the TV, being reminded and showing visuals of Black bodies dying in streets, and no one ever critically thinking of how does that feel as a Black person to watch someone die. What did I learn by watching a Black person die on my timeline and people keep posting it without critically thinking how that can keep reinforcing harm and reinforcing fear to the communities in which that's happening? Because when I seen that video, I took that as, you know, this is what can happen to you if you don't act right. This is what can happen to you if you don't show up correctly. And so I think sometimes our allyship can get lost there because we see other folks doing it. So we think it's a smart idea to keep doing it as well. I absolutely agree. I think I think at a certain point of like 
you know, the summer of 2020, I was very active on social media. I was very active in like educating my followers and just like being really present all the time, which I think, you know, contributes to my burnout now, but that's a different conversation. Um, But I learned, you know, when I would post things, I eventually started to learn that like, I looked at the people around me and they were just so tired of seeing people like them die that I would put trigger warnings in front of everything that I would post because I do also believe, you know, you are responsible for your own triggers. However, if you're going to post something like that, then I think you definitely owe your audience like some sort of, you know, like, hey, this is a really graphic video. I don't think if you don't want to watch it, don't watch it. You were notified prior to. And I think that's so harmful. Um, Like when you see people like you continuously die and not just and not just die, like they're literally dying because they look like you. And I don't think that hits home for a lot of people. Like you're not understanding, like they die simply because of the color of their skin. Like those words for me hit so deep. And I think people entirely miss that because it doesn't affect them when they're, when you have fair skin, like myself, I'm very fair skinned. Like it, like for some reason goes over so many people's heads, like black people look at those people dying and they can see themselves. Kids have social media nowadays. Kids see people like them dying and it affects them. Sorry, I was going to say a very different word, but it definitely affects them. Yeah, I I agree. I also question, um, why does it take a video of someone dying? Thank you. You know, it's in police brutality or you know, a trans person getting assaulted. Why does it take the video for folks to want to act? Why does it take the video to go, oh, wow, violence is wrong. Like, you got to watch this to see how bad the problem really is. Yes. Do you? That's strange to me. It almost reminds me of how, like, folks like like, like to watch horror movies. It's almost like that, that kind of similar experience. I I really, that can be a whole episode within itself of what's going on Mm -hmm. there to unpack some of that. But as we're coming to the end of this conversation, some of the thoughts I want to finish on is recommendations for students, for staff, faculty, for the, our listeners watching. What should they take away from this episode? What should they start doing after this? Um, any thoughts on that? And I want to just throw into the mix, we talked about this right before we started recording, which is that many of us feel in some stage of burnout. Um, so maybe... The allies also, I think, have a role to play here. I mean, I'm going to bring up Loretta Ross again, but one analogy that she uses often is about geese flying and that geese take turns, you know, they fly in a V, right? And there's one that's in the front of the V. And when that one gets tired, it goes to the back and then gets pulled along by the rest. They take turns taking that, taking that lead. Um, and I think, uh, you know, burnout, activism, allyship, the, it's something that we really need to figure out how to be sustainable um, in terms of social growth and change. So, you know, in terms of what to offer students, um, and also ourselves, um, how can we do work that is hard, um, and that, that takes a lot of different kinds of emotional labor and growth and also take care of ourselves and each other around burnout? Um, I'll go back to kind of like what we mentioned earlier with, um, taking actions of like listening um, learning, um, self-awareness and going beyond just being a, 
good person because it takes those uncomfortable conversations to actually create change and learn something. I think some advice for students, um, especially if you're looking to be an ally, and now that we're kind of sort of a little bit leaning away from COVID and we're having like on-ground events and in-person meetings um, to show up. But when you show up, understand that the space isn't built for you. Um, And it's a time to listen. Like I think when we say like allies have a responsibility of learning, you're going to learn the most from stories, from real stories, from real people. Um, And I think when it comes to burnout um, for anyone um, as an ally, like part of your job is to be there when the people you're supporting can't especially when they're burnt out, especially when they're tired of having the same conversations over and over and over again. It is your job to step in because you've learned so much from listening that you're there to speak for them and to know that they want you to speak for them when they know you know the information. And that, before I toss it back to you, Jamil, to totally wrap us up, this is, again, it's always hard for us to stop these conversations because they're they're so rich, but I, you know, Cam, as you're talking about, you know, showing up and coming to campus events, that just reminds me that, you know, one thing that I'd like to share, which is that we can all build our capacity to be uncomfortable. Like you, you show up to a space that maybe you've never shown up to before and you want to be in support, you're listening, maybe you're uncomfortable and that's okay. You know, I think we need to really just practice taking a breath and being okay because you know, learning and growth is uncomfortable. Um, expanding yourself as a person, uncomfortable. Um, but to not have that, to not always seek out being comfortable all the time, um, to be okay with like, oh man, <laughs> I feel really awkward right now. I feel really whatever. Great. That means that you're pushing yourself. Yes. My, so my final reimagination of our community is for us to be in community with each other, to truly be in community, in communication, having those conversations, and showing that folks feel belonged wherever they are, you know, making sure people feel at home and comfortable in spaces in which you're currently occupying. I think often we're not aware of who's around us and how comfortable they may be feeling. Um, Saying hello and speaking to people, starting there. I think also for students, bringing social justice topics into your academic work, talking about allyship in the classroom, we need to have those conversations in the classroom. And so however you can bring that into your academic work, on your group projects, on your thesis, on your final papers, learning more in that sense would really help your allyship. Um, So those are some of my recommendations for folks that are listening And to also just have this conversation amongst your friends, amongst your colleagues, to hear their thoughts, because other people's thoughts are really important, too. And other people have really good thoughts. So ask other people around you. Um, You'll learn more. Well, thank you, Gabby and Cam, so much for joining us today. Thanks for all the work that you do on campus to create those spaces of home um, and belonging. And we look forward to talking to you both again soon. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thank you.